The text is as follows. Paul writes, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. There's a shoe store right off the interstate in the deep south that my wife and I would drive by now and then. And the sign for that shoe store, you just couldn't miss it. It was so big, white background, big red letters. That shoe store sign said this. Jesus is Lord at Bargain Shoes. That was the sign of the shoe store. I actually owned a pair of shoes. I bought a pair of shoes from Jesus is Lord at Bargain Shoes. Of course, when you see a sign like that, your question is, is Jesus Lord at Bargain Shoes? And how would you know? Well, I have my own opinions about that, but those are, I'll keep to myself. I'll suffice it to say that I tried to look for that store online and found out that it is not in existence anymore. It's one thing to claim that Jesus is Lord in a particular place, but it's another thing entirely for Jesus to actually be the Lord. And this brings us to these exhortations that Paul is giving to the people to whom he's writing in which he's teaching them how to live life with Jesus as Lord. I've reminded you from time to time that the central admonition in this letter is found in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 of Colossians. You can see there in your text when Paul says, therefore, and when he says therefore, he's drawing upon this grand, vast, full-length portrait of Christ that he has presented for us. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. He's saying, you have received as Lord, the one who is responsible for the creation of the universe and who is responsible for the sustaining of the universe and the one who can reconcile all things to God to bring those who are far from God into a right relationship with God. That is your Lord. That is Jesus Christ. So as you have received him as Lord, now you should live your life as he is Lord of your life. But it's not left to our imagination to guess what does it look like when Jesus is Lord of a person's life. To put it more specifically in context, when this Lord Jesus Christ brings sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins, raises them to life in him, puts them into a right relationship with God, gives them the life of Christ, what does that look like? When people who are raised with Christ, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, so look at, look at the text and see what Paul is doing. He's reasoning with them. He's saying, if you have been raised with Christ, there are implications for the way that we should live. And then he gives these instructions to specific people, wives and husbands and children and parents 
and bond servants and masters and everybody. Okay, here is what your life will look like. Now, when I read the text, you heard me say the word bond servants. That's also translated slaves. You also heard me say masters. And it could be, whereas last week we addressed wives, husbands, children, and parents, it was very evident who that applied to. But I read bond servants and masters, and it's not so clear who that applies to. Because you may be looking around and you say, I don't see, I don't, I don't know any slaves, I don't own any slaves. How does this text apply? So because of that, I will need to bridge a divide culturally and chronologically so that we can walk back into the first century, understand what's going on, walk back into the 21st century and see how this text applies to us. I'm going to point out three important parts about these instructions. Three things that will be helpful for us before I get into the, the body of my message. So this is just by way of introduction. What strikes us about these instructions that Paul gives to families and to workers? And the first thing, as we looked at last time, if we remove the lens of our cultural preferences, is, is that these instructions that Paul is giving to people, families, husbands, wives, children, parents, bondservants, masters, these instructions are not intended as a recipe for a happy family. Nor are they intended to repress individual expression. But rather, they are to show what it looks like when a person lets Jesus be Lord of their lives. Which shows us, tells us that there's something more important than traditional family here, going on here. Although that's important. And there's something more important than individualism that's going on here. Although that could be important. What's important here is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's driving everything. He must be Lord. Jesus is the one, as Paul who has explained, who created all things, who reconciles all things to God, who reconciles believers to God. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the one who could do what religious rituals cannot do. He is the one who can do what ecstatic religious experiences cannot do. He is the one who, who can do what rules can't do. He's the one who can bring you from death to life. That's what Jesus can do for us. So he's the one that can give shape to our attitudes and actions and all our relationships. He alone can bring you from guilt to forgiveness, from being God's enemy to being God's child. A family can't do that. A marriage can't do that. Individualism can't do that. That's why Jesus must be Lord. That's why Jesus is so much more important than any of these things. And so what's striking about these instructions is first is that Jesus is central. But second, another thing that's striking about these instructions is that they are presented as the overflow of a relationship with Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. It would be possible for us to look at these instructions and, and think this. Oh, this is what I have to do in order to have a right relationship with God. That's not it at all. Paul is saying this. You already have the life of Christ within you and from that life flows these different things. It's not that you... You be a good wife, or you be a good husband, or you be obedient children, or you have a good marriage, you have a good family, and then maybe God will like you. No, that's not it at all. Paul is speaking to those who have been raised with Christ, and he's saying this, from your relationship with Jesus flows these things. They're presented as the overflow, not the source of a relationship with Jesus. But third, 
These instructions touch us at the very point where we must decide between my will and his will. How do you know if Jesus is Lord of your life? It's going to touch you at a point where you must decide. What Jesus, what it means for Jesus to be Lord means more than just having a sign over your shoe store that says Jesus is Lord at Bargain Shoes. It means more than just having a bumper sticker with John 3.16 on it. It means more than just having verses in your homes. It means acting in a certain way at a specific time in your specific roles. You cannot be neutral to this. So having dealt with families and children, wives, parents, husbands, Paul now turns to workers. Now, I need to explain before, again, this is by way of introduction before we get into the text here, what Paul means by bond slaves, by these bond servants and masters today. So I want to explain to you about slavery in the first century. See, slavery and the existence of slaves was just an accepted reality of life in the Greco-Roman culture. Some people estimate that they were up to, um, the number of slaves could have been up to one-third of the population of Rome. What did these slaves do? What was their jobs? Well, they, they, their jobs varied greatly. Like some of them uh, could have even been teachers of the children of their masters. They could have been like household slaves. They, they taught. They were slaves because of their knowledge. Uh, some of them could have been farm managers. Some of these slaves could have been bank executives even. And they had great responsibility and great skills. Some of them could have been captains of ships. Uh, but not all slaves had those kinds of privileges or responsibilities. On the other hand, some slaves could be workers in brutal conditions, in mines or, or plantations, farms. It was an accepted reality. It was so much part of the culture that it wouldn't have occurred to anybody to do away with this institution of slavery, not even to the slaves themselves, although they might not have liked their condition. They might have been able to see, oh, I'm being repressed, I'm being, uh, I'm being mistreated, I have these kinds of responsibilities, I'm not getting paid. And yet, at, they, they wouldn't have even conceived of a society in which slavery did not exist. It was so much part of the culture. Just like many things in our culture that may be wrong, we, don't, we might not be able to see because, we're, because of our own cultural lenses. But just because it was accepted doesn't mean it was acceptable. doesn't make it right. Because the slaves, as, as individuals, as people, they had no rights. They had no legal status. They could not own property. Uh, they, along with the goats and couches and houses of their owners, they were property. They were owned some people have argued that the condition of slaves uh, in that culture was pretty decent. That would have depended on the owner. That would have been on, on the, the character or the condition of the person who owned them. But whether or not it was a decent condition for the slaves, it is not a decent or accepted thing for a human to own another human. Because the slavery is based on these inhumane principles. First, that there are differing levels among humans. In fact, the great philosopher Aristotle in discussing this says, It is manifest that some are free men and others are slaves by nature. 
talk about dehumanizing. Some people in that culture were slaves. Well, that's just because it's your nature to be a slave. And second, a second principle on which this slavery is, is founded is that these lower human beings who are by nature slaves could be owned by another human being. And we, we can now recognize that, that owning another human being dehumanizes both the owner and the owned. Why? Because inevitably, no human being can be trusted with that much power over another human being without it leading to oppression. And so this, this institution here of slavery is, uh, is not an acceptable practice. There's an example of a slave named Spartacus uh, just uh, about 60 or so years before Paul wrote this letter. Uh, and he organized an army. They estimated it was about 70 to 120,000 slaves organized themselves into a revolt in 73 BC. The revolt was finally crushed two years later and the 6,000 survivors were all crucified. This was the condition of slaves. It was, quote, I'm quoting a historian here, a forceful message to all Roman slaves that any chance of winning freedom through violence was futile. So in light of all this, it's, it's easy to look at a text like this and say, well, this doesn't have much to do with us today because Paul is addressing people uh, in an institution that doesn't exist anymore. But there is an important point of overlap for us. And that comes, with an ish- that comes down to the issue of power. Because whether owned or not owned, whether slave or free, all of us find ourselves in a position of being under authority or in authority. And sometimes both. In many cases, both in authority and under authority. Although not the kind of authority that was wielded when slavery was an institution, yet we do find ourselves in our workplaces in a position of authority as the masters that Paul addresses here in Colossians chapter 4 verse 1 or under authority as the bondservants that Paul addresses here in these other, ver- these other verses. See, unlike the bondservants and masters of the ancient world, no human being owns you. Although you own, are owned by something. We're going to get to that later. And you don't, know, you don't own anybody. Although sometimes we act like we own people in the way that we treat people sometimes. Unlike the culture of that time, you're not owned and you don't own, but like the people in that culture, you find yourself in a position of authority or under authority. And when under authority, here's what we tend to do. We tend to craft our behavior based on that authority alone. If the authority is unfair, we resent it. If the authority seems to favor us, we like it. If the authority is abhorrent, we abhor it. We we tend to behave ourselves based on that authority and that authority alone. If we're not working hard and we think the authority isn't paying attention, our motivation doesn't, goes away. If we're, if we're not working hard and the authority suddenly pays attention, suddenly our motivation returns. When under authority, we tend to abhor that authority. And when in authority, we tend to abuse that authority. 
This is just a tendency of the human heart. Suddenly, our, we, we find ourselves in a position of power and authority. And so we think, whoa, I've got a lot of power here. There's a lot I could do for myself. You see, the human nature is the same, whether it is the people in the first century or even now when we find ourselves in authority or under authority. What, what's the issue here? It's an issue of power. It's an issue of whether I'm going to resent the authority that's over me or whether I'm going to, in authority, whether I'm going to abuse the authority for my own selfish purposes. See, Paul's message to both bondservants and masters here is this. Whether you are in authority or under authority, Christ is the final authority. And the message is the same to us today. Whether you are in a position of authority, you're in authority, or whether you're under authority, you have to recognize there is just one ultimate authority, and that is Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because what Paul is doing, he is exhorting both bond slaves and masters on the basis of one master. And that is Jesus Christ. He is stressing with these bond servants, what you're doing is not for the sake of the master that you see over you, but th there is a master over him and you both serve the same master. There's just one final authority and that is Jesus Christ and you both serve him. Whether in authority or under authority, there is one final authority and that is Jesus Christ. So let's look at these instructions before we apply it to our own lives. Let's look at, first of all, the bondservants. Paul says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Under the examining the instructions to the bondservants, we'll see what they are to do and why they are to do it. What are they to do? We see in verse 22, they are to obey. They have an authority over them, and they are to obey that authority. You see, the scope of their obedience in verse 22, Paul says, obey in everything, and the quality of their obedience, he specifies in two ways. Look at this. Negatively, the servants are to not, the bond servants are to not obey by way of eye service. And here's what that means. Don't obey just when somebody is watching you, which tends to happen all the time. When the authority is around, Obedience happens, but only because the authority is watching. Paul says, don't obey just by eye service. I mean, you know what this looks like in a, in a workplace. The boss comes around, everyone straight starts looking like they're working real hard. Boss, boss goes away and then suddenly everything just kind of relaxes. Paul is saying this, not by way of eye service. Why? He links that with being Men pleasers or people pleasers, because if you're doing it by eye, just for eye service, if you're working hard just when somebody is watching, that means that you're working hard just to please somebody. Verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. That's the negative way. He says, bond servants, don't work in that way. Here's how you should work. When you work... You should work sincerely, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. These bondservants had much to fear. 
because their whole life was bound up in the character of their owner. And their owner had, had every right to treat them however they wanted. And there was so much that these bondservants had to fear. And, and, and what Paul is saying is this. You actually don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to serve just when people are watching. You can actually serve when your, bonds, when your master is not around. Why? Because you're not actually serving him. You're serving Christ. Now, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how radically countercultural this is. Because our assumption is, and their assumption was, I serve my master because he's my master. And Paul's saying, actually, you don't. What looks like service to a master is actually service to your true master. And what it looks like in your case is obedience. But if that master, your true master, Jesus Christ, says do something that your earthly master says don't do, your obligation is first and foremost to Jesus Christ as your master. That's why when you work, you're not just working when the eyes of your earthly master is on you because the eye of your heavenly master is on you all the time. That's why you could work with sincerity of heart because man looks on the outward appearance. I mean, they, they may think that you're working real hard, but Jesus Christ knows your heart. And that's what motivates the work and the service of the bondservant. Positively, work with sincerity of heart. Positively, because you fear the Lord. Heartily, he says in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, this begins to transition into, I said, what the bondservants are to do. They're to work not with eye service, not merely out of a motivation to please human beings. Rather, they're to work hard, they're to work sincerely, but this transitions to the why. What they are to do, now why they are to do it. Why are they to work this way? Because Jesus Christ is their master. Their service and your service, if you find yourself in a position under authority, which if you have any kind of gainful employment, this is the case for all of us, you find yourself under authority the real thing that motivates and informs your work is not your authority, your human authority, it is your heavenly authority. The bond servants in Paul's day would often be mistreated. They were certainly not recompensed for their work because they were considered the possession of their owners. But Paul says this in verse 23, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Can you imagine what hope and thrill would fill the heart of any servant who heard those words? Those who are cringing and cowering under the cruelty of a human master realizes that their true master is one not who's taking advantage of them, but one who loves them. You're serving the Lord Christ. And he will reward you. Earlier in the series, we dealt with this topic of, of faith and hope and love. We talked about the fact that that faith informs a Christian's life where we believe that Jesus Christ died for us. We believe that he rose from the dead. And we believe that because of his death and resurrection, we can have life in him. And because of that faith, we love him and we love other people. That's a, that's a past and present oriented uh, way of living. But there's also a future orientation. And that is encapsulated by this word hope. 
A bondservant that day had little to hope for in this present life, but when they realized that Jesus Christ is their master, and Jesus Christ is their true Lord, and he will reward them whether or not an earthly master will, that gives them great hope. Because you know that your reward, you're serving the Lord Christ, and you will receive the inheritance as your reward. What they are to do, obedience, why they are to do it, because Jesus Christ is Lord. He will uphold justice for them. Verse 25 serves as a transition from the instructions of the bondservants to the instruction to the masters. Paul says this, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And this applies whether you're in authority or under authority. There is a great temptation as servants to do the wrong thing. To steal, to get away with laziness, to, uh, to, to rebel. And for the masters to abuse their authority. And Paul is reminding both masters and servants, the wrongdoer will be paid for the wrong he has done. To Jesus Christ, the true master, it doesn't matter whether anyone's an earthly master or a servant. Justice will be done. And those in authority to the, ma the instruction to the masters. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And we read this, and it doesn't strike us as being that unusual, but I need to constantly remind us that this is radically countercultural in Paul's day. To address the bondservants and the slaves as equals and actually tell the, 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 the I'm sorry, the bondservants and masters and equals, as equals and actually to tell the masters that they have an obligation to their bondservants in a society in which no master had any obligation to his bondservant because he or she was his possession. And now as Paul is saying, no, you both serve the same master and because of that master, you must treat your servant justly and fairly. Literally, give him justice. Give him what is fair. Don't abuse your power. Don't take advantage of your position. You must treat them equally because you are equal in Jesus Christ. Knowing, Paul says, that you also have a master in heaven. Now at this point, it might be helpful to back up from the first century world and see how this hits us in our 21st century world. Because one question that people ask when we deal with a text like this is this. Paul, they think this, Paul addressed bondservants and their masters, but why didn't he just call for the abolition of slavery? And a lot of people have actually argued that the Bible has been used to promote slavery. And this is a serious charge because, the Bi because some people have taken texts of the Bible and used it to justify slavery. But far from being a justification and reason for slavery, we must understand that the Christian faith and the book upon which it is founded has been the greatest impetus for the abolition of slavery, of this inhumane practice of one human owning another. In 1787, a young man, he was in his late 20s, wrote this in his journal. 
God Almighty has set before me two great objects. The suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And that was an old way of saying the reformation of moral values. That young man was a member of the British Parliament and he went on to champion the abolition of the slave trade. His name, William Wilberforce. It was William Wilberforce's distinctly gospel-shaped priorities, as well as the encouragement of his friend, John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, that gave rise to this pivotal historical movement. And the seeds of the abolition of slavery are in the Bible. After all, Paul, in another of his letters to the Corinthians, he told the, the, the Christian slaves in Corinth, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And in another letter to Philemon, when he said that a slave friend, he said a slave friend of his had become, a, had become, quote, dear to me as both a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And he instructed the slave owner to receive the runaway slave no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Now that is radical. But suppose Paul had called for the abolition of slavery. What would have happened? We can't know for certain. But in light of that illustration or the, the anecdote that I shared with you about that, the revolt, you can only imagine the, the slaughter and, and widespread violence that would result. But even if he had, it could have reinforced this idea of people, whether bond servants or slaves, thinking this, I wish I could serve the Lord, but I can't really until my circumstances change. I wish I could serve Jesus as my Lord, but, but until I'm no longer a slave, I really can't be free to do that. And, and what, what Paul is saying here is the message of the whole New Testament is that you can serve Jesus in whatever condition of life you find yourself in. You don't have to wait for some social revolution to live with Jesus as your Lord. You can live with Jesus as your Lord no matter where you are. You don't have to wait till your circumstances change. They might change. They might never change. It doesn't matter. Jesus is Lord and he can be your Lord and you can live with him as your Lord no matter what. This is precisely the thing that was going on earlier in the New Testament when John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, he comes preaching and he's preaching this, this message of repentance. He's telling people to turn away from their sins and people are thronging to him and they're being baptized and they're asking him, they're repenting and they're saying, what should we do? And how should we show that we're truly repentant. And you know what John's response to these people were? He said, hey, if you, have, if you have two coats, give one of them to someone who doesn't have any. And he said to, the, he said to tax collectors, now, now get this, in this culture, tax collectors are the despised. They're the bad guys. And they're actually coming in a moment of vulnerability. Here's John's opportunity to promote a social revolution. Tax collectors are coming to him and saying, what should we do? The door's wide open. What does he say? He doesn't say, you better quit your job as a tax collector. He just said this, don't collect any more than you're supposed to. Even more radical, soldiers Roman soldiers came to John and they said, 
What should we do? Oh, this was John's perfect opportunity to say, quit the Roman army. What did he say? He said, don't be violent. Don't extort anything from anybody and be content with your pay. That's what he said. Here's what's going on here. The fact that Jesus is Lord means you can serve Jesus in whatever condition God has in his sovereignty placed you. That's why Paul can address wives and husbands and children and, and, and bond servants and masters. Why? Because Jesus being Lord isn't limited to any political circumstance or cultural circumstance. Jesus can be Lord right now all the time. You can let Jesus be Lord at your work right now. It's easy for us to think, oh, I, I really can't serve the Lord because of these circumstances in my life because my, my boss is unfair or there's just a situation right in here and it's just really irking me. Listen, none of those qualifications exist here. Paul is saying this, you can serve the Lord anywhere you are. Another example, actually, again, from the life of William Wilberforce. <laughs> he was, this was four years before he wrote this, that entry that I read to you in his journal. He, he sought John Newton's advice. John Newton at this time was an, a seasoned pastor. Uh, he had written a, a very famous uh, bestseller a biography of his conversion story. And young 24-year-old William Wilberforce, who was a member of Parliament, he was in great turmoil because he, he felt like he should cut short his political career and go into the ministry. And he comes to John Newton and he asks him, should I, should I cut off my political career and should I go into the ministry? What does the seasoned pastor who has become famous for his conversion, he was a slave trader and he was converted and, and, and began serving the Lord and actually would become a great proponent against the slave trade. What does a seasoned pastor tell this young man with such potential I'm thinking about going to the ministry. Newton firmly advised his young friend not to withdraw from politics, but to stay in the House of Commons and serve God as a Christian statesman. The, biography, the biographer asks this, what would have happened if Newton had agreed to Wilberforce's view that he should leave public life and follow a religious vocation? This is not to say that the ministry is unimportant. It absolutely is. This is to say that God has a great work for you to do where you are now. God may lead some young men to be a pastor. I hope he does. But if he doesn't, God can use you in amazing ways right where you are, in your job, even in the most mundane circumstances of your life. You can serve Jesus as Lord wherever you are, whoever you are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your life has been radically transformed. You have the life of Christ in you. This is what, what Paul says to the bondservants what he says to the masters applies to every single one of us who are a believer in Jesus Christ. In verse 24 of chapter 3, you are serving the Lord Christ, which actually could be a command, an imperative, an exhortation. Serve the Lord Christ. And for those of you who are under authority, which 
which all of us find ourselves under authority in some way, we must remember that we do serve the Lord Christ, that our behavior should not be shaped by the authority above us and for those in authority. If you find yourself in a position of authority over other people, consider this. Do you treat those under you with fairness? Are you letting the manners and love of Jesus give shape to the way that you treat your employees or those under you? Or do you leverage your authority and power for selfish purposes? But whether in authority, whether in power, whether under authority, whether under power, we all need to realize this. Somebody or something owns you. It's easy to, for us to forget the fact that when the, the, the bond servants were thinking of their masters, they're not just thinking of their boss, they're thinking of the person who owned them. But everybody, everybody here has something that, or someone that owns them. No human is truly free. Let me ask you this question. What owns you this morning? What owns you? It's easy for us to think that we're in charge of our own life. But something owns you or someone owns you. Is it money? Does money own you? Are you a slave to getting and gaining? Does a job own you? Is that job all important to you, all encompassing to you, affects every decision you make? Or is your true master Jesus Christ and that job is just a way you serve him? Does some substance own you? Does alcohol own you? Does sex own you? Does pornography own you? Does it have a grip on you? An ambition? The desire to be loved and accepted by somebody? Does anger or revenge own you? We're owned by something. And you may not have a label right on your forehead indicating what owns you, but it's etched right deep into your heart and it gives motives to everything that you do. Remember earlier we said that if you're owned by, uh, someone who's owned by something is dehumanized. There's only one way that being owned will not crush you. And that is if you're owned by someone who loves you. Because Jesus being master means that the master that you have, if you're a believer in, in Jesus, is the master who became a slave to save you. Jesus said, I did not come to be ministered to. I came to minister and give my life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, who is, was the king of heaven, came and became a slave, a servant of all. And he died a death so that he could be the rightful master of those who believe in him. I mean, what better master could you want? Has, does the thing, if I, if I listed something and, and as soon as I said that word, you're like, oh, that's it, that owns me. C can that give you joy or peace or liberation or comfort or salvation or anything that Jesus can give you? 
Can that alcohol or can that pornography or that job or that money, can it give you the peace and the life and the reconciliation that Jesus alone can give you by his sacrifice for you? So Jesus Christ is Lord. And he earns his place as Lord because he became servant of all. He obeyed God to, to the greatest degree, to the death of the cross, so that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus being Lord is not just a sign you put over your store. It's not just a bumper sticker you put on your car. It's not just as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord that you put in your house. Jesus as Lord comes right down to the decisions you make every single day. Will your motivation be shaped by the one who loved you so much he died for you? Or will you be ruled by something else? The only way you can be ruled and mastered by Jesus is if you believe in him as your savior. Therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him.